Hey, this is Jason Williams. And this is Carl Rodeo, and you're listening to Carrie Parker on the Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons podcast. Thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. This is episode 225 for June 21st, 2021. And we've got a really interesting interview for you today. Uh, it's about hacking satellites. Uh, we've talked about lots of cybersecurity topics before, and I'm pretty sure I've never talked about hacking satellites. But if you think about it, these things are just computers in space. They've got radios because they've got to talk to the ground. So so you can kind of think of them like nest thermostats or uh, you know baby monitors circling the planet at a few thousand miles above the surface. So I'm going to be doing things a little bit differently for this interview and the next interview. Uh, normally, I would split these up and do them over two shows. Uh, I'm actually going to do two interviews back to back, but I'm going to do both interviews as complete shows. So two shows, two completely different interviews. And honestly, I think moving forward, I may start doing that more. The new shows have gotten longer. So I'm kind of clocking in at about an hour per show anyway. So I think I might just start doing interview, then news, interview, then news, and keep them all together. We'll see. Uh, you're welcome to send me feedback uh, on that, either on Discord if you're a patron. Uh, you can send me an email at feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com uh, if you have any thoughts on that. But I'm kind of leaning to go that way. I've gotten so many interviews, and honestly, they're getting kind of backed up. And so by the time they air, sometimes the things we talk about seem antiquated because it was recorded two months prior to uh, airing. So... Anyway, we will be having today in its entirety our wonderful interview with Jason Williams and Carl Rodeo. But before we get into that, a couple quick news items for you. If you want to get that challenge coin, that really super cool fantasy-based D20 custom coin that I made, uh, of which there are only 100 on the entire planet, now is your time. The uh, I'm going to end the promotion at the end of June. I will still have some coins left over, so who knows what I may do with some of those in the future. But if you want to lock one of those puppies in, get them while you can. Go to patreon.com, search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, of course, look for the link in the show notes. That'll get you there as well. And if you want to learn more about the coin, go to the firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and uh, look for the recent article on that challenge coin. You'll get all the info there. But it's really cool. I'm so glad I did this. Uh, they've been a lot of fun, and I'm sure I'm going to have some fun uses for those down the line. And, you know, one more thing I'll, I'll mention that I don't talk about it much, but this is a great time to bring it up, is another bonus I've been giving to patrons is bonus podcast content. And, you know, one of the things I like to ask the guests is kind of like their origin story. You know, how do they get to be where they are today? And I did that for both Carl and Jason and got some great stories. But in particular, <laughs> I got lots of bonus content from these guys. Um, I don't always have time to do that. Some guests have time limitations or whatever, but uh, I got plenty of good stories from, from Carla Chase and, and I got some DEF CON stories from these guys that are really amazing. And one of the things I asked them because they're, you know, they're not newbies like me is when you're going to DEF CON, like, how do you prepare for that? Like, you know, you, you hear all these urban myths potentially about, you know, well, don't bring your regular computer or don't bring your regular smartphone. I mean, you're going to a den of hackers that's going to get hacked. So if that's the case, what do you do? And I asked them that question and they answered. So uh, anyway, if you were, again, it, just another bonus would be a patron. So uh, go to patreon.com, check that out. And uh, this week I've got some really great extra bonus content from these guys. Next up, you only have till June 23rd, which even if you listen to this on the day it drops, it's only two more days to get 55% off of my book at apress.com. That's a crazy sale. They have sales from time to time, but I don't remember them ever doing one quite that big. 
And because they just recently also dropped the price of my book, there has literally never been a better time to get the book, uh, at least in terms of price. So if you ever thought about getting it, if you've got an older edition that you want to update, if you want to get some as gifts, go to apress.com, use code SUMMER2021, and get a killer deal uh, on the book and every book they offer. Also, again, <laughs> I know this sounds like a repeat, and it is, but it's for new reasons. If you've got Chrome or Windows or basically any Adobe product whatsoever, make sure you get them updated. There's been some nasty bugs found in those. So, you know, as usual, keep that software up to date. All right, uh, so <laughs> let me set up this interview. Um, I'm not going to lie, you know, today's episode is going to sound maybe a little technical. Some, there's going to be some jargon thrown around, but as usual, don't let that cloud the bigger picture. This is really a cool project, and it's a testament, really, to how the U.S. government is taking cybersecurity more seriously. And it's a template for how we make things more secure in general. The way we make sure that stuff is good is we vet it. We put it through its paces. We run, we run the gauntlet. And you got to get more people looking at things. You got to, you can't grade your own homework. We need projects like this, the one we're going to talk about today, and bug bounty programs and other similar programs to shop these things around, to get these things out in front of other people. And yeah, throw a little bit of money into the mix to make it interesting. We're going to be talking today about hacking satellites and how the U.S. government um, and some corporations that work for them are banding together to come up with programs to let hackers anybody, which could be anybody, uh, beat on these things and see if they can find chinks in the armor. And so today we're going to be talking with two gentlemen from two different corporations working with the U.S. government and military groups to try to beef up the security of the satellites in orbit over our heads. And one quick disclaimer that they uh, asked me to, to put up here, they're here representing themselves, they're not representing their corporations or the U.S. government. So with that, and without any further delay, let's get to our really cool interview with Jason and Carl about Hackasat. Carl Rodeo Jr. is a principal cybersecurity engineer for the MITRE Corporation, supporting the U.S. Space Force Defensive Cyber Operations for Space Systems. Say that three times fast. MITRE operates federally funded research and development centers, or FFRDCs, which support the U.S. government in a variety of cap uh, capacities. Uh, welcome to the show, Carl. Hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate getting to talk a little bit about this area. I cannot wait. Uh, Jason Williams is a security researcher, engineer, and CEO of Cromulence LLC, and member of Legitimate Business Syndicate, who are the organizers of the DEF CON CTF from 2012 to 2017. He's got 15 plus years experience in cybersecurity and vulnerability research. Welcome, Jason. Thanks, Gary, and I look forward to this podcast. Kind of a mutual friend of some of ours, maybe not all of ours individually, uh, Melanie Anson reached out to, to me uh, about this and wanted originally to kind of do a blog post because you guys got, got something really cool coming up that uh, we wanted to kind of publicize, which we will talk about. Uh, but I thought, hey, you know, I'd love to get these guys on for an interview. And, and so I'm really glad you guys agreed to do this. And the topic we're going to talk about today is hacking satellites, which is really cool and also really scary. So <laughs> I can't wait to dive into that. Um, before we get into all those details, though, tell me a little bit more about, uh, you know, how you guys got to do what you did and, you know, what your uh, individual organizations are, are up to. Jason, why don't we start with you? Yeah, so, you know, Hackasat actually kind of was a, a brainstorming idea by, uh, I think, a guy named Frank Pound, a good friend of mine, and uh, known him a long time. And he was always wanting to do a competition uh, similar to, uh, you know, capture the flag style competitions that they do for DEF CON mm -hmm. with a satellite focus towards it. And he's, you know, it was kind of, I think it was his idea and his genesis of it. And uh, we knew some of the folks that had been involved in Cyber Grand Challenge 
and within the government and they you know knew of our capabilities and we got invited along to do some of the technical aspects of that the competition infrastructure and so forth and so that's how cromulence ended up involved and what else does cromulence do is it uh, what what else is under your purview so we do cybersecurity. We primarily uh, work for the DOD, but we also do uh, red team assessments for commercial industry as well. So we do a lot of capabilities there and uh, a lot of advanced technology development with DARPA and so forth. So that's primarily what we're focused on. Cool. All right, Carl, how about yourself? Yeah. So um, so basically I've been kind of working in information security, cybersecurity uh, before it was actually called that. So I guess I hmm. kind of uh, started as a civilian for the Department of the Treasury in about 2002. And, you know, that was uh, kind of when folks started kind of saying, hey, maybe we should, you know, pay a little more attention to the security of our, our you know, computer systems that kind of do a lot of important stuff for the federal government. Right. And so I got in sort of at the ground floor there. That's when things started to actually really pick up in terms of, you know, taking this problem seriously. And got to do some pretty interesting stuff because there weren't a lot of folks that were working, um, you know, in that area at the time. And then from there, I um, worked, worked for Treasury for about four years and started working for the MITRE Corporation. And basically, I've worked in a number of different capacities, for the mainly with the federal government doing uh, what is now cybersecurity. And, and so my interests have sort of taken me into more of the niche areas. So uh, we spent a decent while looking at ICS and SCADA uh, system security. That was pretty interesting. And then um, with a lot of the uh, changes in sort of uh, the the space domain and, and a lot of, um, you know, with the stand up Space Force and some of those things um, got got into looking at space system security. And um, that's been something I've been working on for about the last four years. And that's really a, definitely an interesting area. So I'm, I'm glad that you're having us on to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Cannot wait to dive into those details. Uh, real quick, though, what, like MITRE, I've heard of them before, but what what do they do in general? Like what other things are they into? Right. So the MITRE Corporation is a company that basically operates federally funded research and development centers. And so it's not for profit. And there are a number of different FRDCs for different parts of the federal government that focus on uh, different problems. So basically, it's a company that kind of works in the public interest and, um, you know, kind of uh, primarily works with the federal government to solve some of the, the hardest problems, biggest challenges. And uh, a significant bit of our work is focused on cybersecurity. And so, um, you know, we, we've got, got opportunities to kind of help different parts of the government with, with that problem. And, and, you know, there's a, a decent chunk of the, the company that works with the Air Force and, and now Space Force. And so that's the, the part of the company I'm supporting currently. Very, very cool. Glad to have you guys out there doing what you're doing, because obviously <laughs> things are pretty rough out there right now in cybersecurity land. But let's talk today uh, specifically about satellites, which I don't think I've ever done on the program before. So this is really cool. Let's start off with some basics, though. So I'm, you know, I'm guessing most people in the listening audience are, you know, they're aware that GPS is a satellite-based service. But what they may not be aware of, I don't think, is how critical this single system is and has become for global commerce and infrastructure and, and national defense. So would one of you kind of walk me through, like, in what ways are we dependent on a fully functional global positioning system? Uh, sure, I, I'll I'll, uh, I'll take a stab at that one. So, um, so basically, GPS is you know one of the um, DoD systems that probably has uh, one of the, you know the most broad reach in terms of criticality and application to kind of everyday life for folks in the U.S. and and other countries even. So uh, a lot of folks don't realize it, but GPS is not just about kind of figuring out where you are, are on Earth. Uh, that's a large part of it, but there's also a timing aspect mm -hmm. to it. So GPS uh, is, is a major part of what they call uh, the PNT system or 
position navigation and timing. Hmm. And so uh, the, the, the timing aspect is something that a lot of folks don't think about too much, but it's almost you know as important, if not more important than the other uh, services GPS provides. And so just to give you some examples, you know, the timing aspect of GPS is critical for, you know, electric power generation and transmission. Mm. So basically generators that are generating power that go onto electrical grid have to be all synchronized in order to transmit that power or generate that power at the appropriate um, frequencies. And uh, without, you know, precision timing, that wouldn't work right. And so you know, there have been uh, some experiments that have looked at what happens if, you know, things get out of sync. And, um, you know, Department of Energy actually did an experiment where they demonstrate that a cyber attack could, could kind of blow up a generator if it got out of sync. Hmm. And so, yeah, that was called the Aurora experiment. So so I believe that was done in 2007 or so. But in any case, um, that is, um, you know, very critical um, for for financial industry, uh, timing is also critical. So uh, stock trading on Wall Street, for example, that also hmm. has a uh, precision timing sort of uh, aspect to it. You know, all those trades happening at the right times is very important. And, um, you know, there's a lot of folks that spend a lot of effort trying to beat each other and get trades <laughs> in a little bit, just, you know, milliseconds faster oh, yeah. than the other guy. But uh, even other things like global shipping, you know, getting boats around the, the world, um, getting planes around the world, truck drivers, there are a lot of those logistics and things are covered by knowing where all these things are at any given moment. Self-driving cars. <laughs> yeah, self-driving cars, right. <laughs> That's a new thing. Yep. Right. So what other sorts of, you know, critical services are dependent either either fully or partially on satellites today? We talked about GPS, but there's obviously a lot of other satellites up there doing a lot of other things. What other ways do satellites play in our everyday lives that we might not realize? Yeah, so I'll take this question. I had a chance actually to pour NOAA's facility out in Wallops Island, and one of the things that I I noticed most was you know the weather observation satellites we all take for granted. Mm. All the weather data that we receive, the environmental, atmospheric data, all of that comes from satellites. So we can't overlook how important weather is to our daily lives and and the economic impacts of it as well. Accurate weather forecasting is something that you know is very essential uh, to our modern lives, and without that, you know, I live in to the Space Coast in Florida here. Without that, we wouldn't be able to plan, you know, hurricanes and their tracks mm-hmm. and so forth and, you know, make appropriate actions from that. So that's one of the most important things that I've, you know, kind of see in my daily life. But also, you know, the science aspects as well is another one that comes for me. You know, the space-based uh, telescopes I had a chance to to see the room where the James Webb telescope was assembled. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't there at the time, but, you know, it was, it was definitely something really intriguing to me, you know, the advancements we've had and how much that has impacted our daily lives, you know, having pictures from you know, the Hubble Space Telescope and, and our understanding of the cosmos and how inspirational that is to young generations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's satellite communications. I mean, we'd, we've had those for some time, but and we're, those are still advancing, like Starlink, right? The Elon Musk venture with the internet mm-hmm. from space. We're just becoming more and more dependent upon satellites. It's amazing how many must be up there at this point. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So originally GPS was military only, right? And then at some point, it, they made it available to the commercial public with some sort of a built-in error rate or something built in. Do I have that right? Or is that urban myth? Are you thinking of the civilian versus the military bands? Yeah. Right. Okay. So civilian use of GPS on one of the contributing factors to how that ended up happening was, um, I believe there was an incident in 1983 where the uh, Soviet Union actually shot down a, a commercial airliner. Hmm. Uh, it had drifted kind of out of commercial airspace into uh, Russian airspace and basically that, that aircraft got shot down. And as a result of that, uh, Ronald Reagan basically announced that GPS would be usable to support civilian purposes. And so that was uh, probably a great thing since so, so many things rely on GPS oh, yeah. currently. 
that uh, it was uh, definitely, um, I mean, unfortunate that it happened, but it was one example of why precision navigation and timing is so critical to everyday life. A lot of big farms use GPS to run their tractors, and it, it's amazing that how much, how many different ways we've found to uh, to use GPS and how we're dependent are we on. Do you guys know what like what portion of satellites currently in orbit are like commercial versus military, and also like maybe country of origin and or control? You know who owns the satellites. Uh, I'm just kind of curious if uh, if you know, and then also curious if you do know that. Uh, how have those stats evolved? You know over time. Uh, sure. So I've got some some numbers on that. So currently, there's about uh, roughly over half of the satellites on orbit are commercial satellites. That started off as as a lot of the satellites that were originally launched were either uh, government or military satellites. Mm-hmm. And over time, uh, industry has been kind of kind of figuring out how to leverage space technology to support more things on their own. The cost of launch has gone down significantly, and that's highly relevant mm-hmm. for both commercial and and government uses of space. SpaceX, kind of with some with the way they're bringing costs down and and spawning you know competition and launch has uh, significantly changed yeah, yeah. the way that we kind of function in space and that's going to kind of just accelerate over the next you know ten years uh, and into the future as cost goes down and um, the technology used to build satellites that that's spawning a whole new kind of generation of satellites that you know where they used to cost millions or even billions of dollars. Now you have small sats that 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 can be relatively cheap, and and the price to get them in orbit is 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 fairly low now, and so um, you know with, with small sat technology you know kind of rapidly accelerating, and and with uh, the cost of launch going down, I think the the numbers on commercial satellites versus government or military satellites on orbit are gonna you're gonna see that that skew even more in the future. Yeah. Yeah, Carrie, I, I just uh, brought up a number that I think was was interesting as Carl was talking. The first Starlink satellite launched May 23rd, 2019. And two years later, they are the largest satellite operator in the world. Oh, wow. Uh, SpaceX is with over 1,400 satellites, operational satellites currently. <laughs> wow. Much to, to the chagrin of a lot of earthbound uh, telescope users. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, wow. That's crazy. Yeah, I've even heard of, uh, I think it was maybe universities and some other programs putting together uh, nanosats, which sound to me like basically Raspberry Pis that they put in or- put into orbit uh, that let them do kind of interesting experiments and things too. It's it is actually absolutely amazing how far we've come with with satellite technology. Another question I've got to ask is: Are there any international agreements or treaties around the use, like accepted uses of satellites, or and even regarding like space warfare, like some sort of Geneva conventions for this? How do we agree on what's allowed or what we can do with uh, with space satellites? That's a really good question. Uh, so, so basically, there aren't a whole lot of rules that govern how space gets used. Uh, there is one treaty, an international treaty, that I believe that got created in the 60s, the late 60s, I think 1967, it started getting uh, ratified. Basically, it's called the Outer Space Treaty. And so that that treaty is one of the few kind of international treaties that governs some basic rules of the road in space. It doesn't really prohibit a whole lot. Um, the, the kind of one of the key points is it basically are all the folks that signed promise not to put weapons of mass destruction in space. Mm. So that's that's good, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so other than that, though, there's not too many international agreements that really set kind of rules or, or standards on, on how things function in space. And so that's fairly concerning. I mean, you only have to look at like the South China Sea, where you have the centuries of kind of maritime law that, that folks are still finding kind of ways to kind of argue about, you know, who owns mm-hmm. what. And so, you know, in outer space, I think with the proliferation of kind of the use of space and, and, and how 
accessible spaces currently. I think that's going to lead to, you know, more conflict in the future, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're here today to talk about you know, these things that we do depend on. A lot of us don't realize that, that how vulnerable they might be and, and how that plays out. I'm sure a lot of us don't really think about it. But before we get into like intentional harms, like, you know, someone actually trying to do something bad, how vulnerable are satellites just in general, like to kind of regular environmental or other natural harms, like you know, space debris or sun flares or things like that? Sorry, I can Jason. probably uh, field this one from uh, more of an engineering point of view because I'm, I'm by no means a satellite expert. But I, I do know that they do take, you know, radiation and solar flares and things like that into account in the design of these satellites. And, and uh, you know, that some satellites just go inoperative and in some cases unexplained uh, hmm. reasons, which might be to those uh, types of effects. But I think Carl would be able to probably answer a lot more there. Right. Yeah. So traditionally, at least uh, spacecraft designers have, you know, have had to kind of worry about threats from the environment in space more than anything. And so Jason was saying uh, things like solar flares or space weather anomalies or, uh, you know, radiation in general, depending on the orbit especially, is generally concerning for keeping a satellite alive in, in outer space. It's a fairly hostile environment. There's, you know, wild temperature swings. Mm -hmm. Radiation is a large concern. Um, in fact, I, I remember seeing a, um, a new uh, flight computer that AFRL had, had developed, and they were really excited about it. And, um, you know, when, when I kind of uh, was new to space, I kind of looked at it and said, oh, you know, like, what's the clock speed of the processor on that? And they said, oh, it's 400 megahertz. And this was, you know, about five years ago. And so I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty impressive. And, uh, you know, and they were like, it has two cores. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's 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 great. And, you know, not having kind of been as familiar with, with space mm -hmm. spacecraft hardware at the time, I kind of wasn't particularly impressed. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, right, that that was a rad-hardened uh, flight computer. And so, you know, you basically have to account for a lot more things when you're putting a, a computer on orbit than you do when you kind of operate it on the ground where you have the uh, luxury of the wonderful atmosphere that mm. blocks a lot of that radiation. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of additional variables and constraints, uh, you know, to putting, you know, some of this technology in space. And the other thing I think is overlooked is how long these things operate and the fact that mm. we can't go and service them. Oh, you know, sure. So you have to design your spacecraft to live in a hostile environment you know, for 10, 15, some cases, 20 years, but there's NOAA satellites that are still in operation that are 25, 30 years old. I heard of examples where, you know, batteries were exploding on satellites and just, you know, you know, those are types of uh, situations that you make as an engineer, you know, have to design for, but you just can't always account for all the possibilities. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a harsh one for, that's a harsh environment for sure. <laughs> okay. So obviously I know you guys, uh, in your particularly privileged positions are probably privy to some information you can't share, but you know, we all read sci-fi novels and watch sci-fi movies. Uh, so uh, this has been talked about certainly by speculatively by, by authors or whatever. So in, in that hypothetical sense, if I wanted to physically disable or destroy a satellite, like what are my most effective options right now? Like how, how might I go about doing that? And, and then as a follow-up, would these sort of attacks require like the budget and skills of like a nation state, or is it actually conceivable for some individual or group to pull something like this off? A number of countries have, have demonstrated capabilities to basically cause kinetic effects to, to things on orbit. Um, so the United States, Russia, China, even India have, have um, you know, basically conducted public experiments where, or, or kind of, you know, address um, issues with failing satellites where they've actually blown up satellites on orbit and uh, using uh, anti-satellite weapons. Hmm. And so these are, you know, 
publicly uh, available. You can kind of go look up uh, details on some of this stuff. You know, obviously, there's countries have the technology to be able to, you know, cause kinetic effects on on satellites. That certainly is, um, you know, a rising threat. That's a, a pretty big concern. So that's, you know, what's what's partially driving some of the uh, efforts you see from the U.S. government in terms of standing up, uh, you know, Space Force and some of, um, you know, the other efforts uh, around kind of how do we better defend these assets that that not only you know provide military utility but also are critical to everyday life like we talked about earlier in the in the podcast yeah satellites today are basically computer brains and you know with with radio capabilities which in my mind basically means they're iot devices in orbit <laughs> so are, are satellites you know more or less susceptible to hacking than let's say your average you know home wi-fi router or a baby monitor or an amazon echo and if so, how, how do the nature of their vulnerabilities maybe differ from, from a standard IoT device we're used to having around the house? Yeah, I think one of the things that I saw with um, some of the satellites that I was looking at, one thing that really stuck out to me was the age of the components, the mm-hmm. age of the software, the hardware, the ground systems that support it, the things that they used. You have to look at the entire life cycle that went into developing these systems. We're talking multi-million dollar efforts that have occurred over multi-year, in some cases, decades of effort. So we have you know, satellite hardware that's in orbit that's, you know, was designed in the 1990s. And as a as an attacker, the skill sets that the attackers are using, the technology, the tools and things like that have evolved mm. significantly in the past you know couple of decades. And so these systems weren't designed with these sorts of attacks in mind without mm-hmm. the security posture that was present today. So I would say to compare them to IoT devices, yeah, I'd say you could probably compare like some CubeSats and things like that, small sats to that. But a lot of these satellites, we're talking running like VAX workstations and, you know, 386 processors or, you know, custom design processors that are, you know, we're talking, you know, decades old at this point right. in time. So it's, it's really interesting to think about it from that perspective. A lot of security today uh, hinges on the fact that, you know, the security posture is built on building defenses against the new attack methods that uh, attackers are using. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and just to echo that, so the I think the first experimental GPS satellites were launched in the late 70s. And so this was wow. a system that was designed, you know, a long time ago. And um, you know, unfortunately cybersecurity wasn't a thing back then and uh, you know, there weren't requirements on how to cybersecure your your space system. And so some of satellites have been in operation for over 20 years. And so, um, you know, being able to modify the, the hardware or, or even sometimes the software is, is relatively difficult to address some of these new threats. Yeah. You know, on the, on the spy novel thing, I, you know, it just occurs to me that, and maybe I actually did read this somewhere. I, I probably did. You know, that it wouldn't necessarily be necessary to completely disrupt, let's say, a GPS system to just completely wreak havoc. I mean, if you just if you just introduce some errors somehow, like a lot of these things are just based on timing. So if you could somehow, you know, override the signals and provide a slightly different signal that let's say, you know, some plane's coming into a land and you tell it it's actually 200 feet higher above the surface than it really, than it really is, that would be horrible. So is that really possible or is that just spy novel kind of stuff? So that's a good question. So there, there's a lot of research in this area currently to kind of understand, um, you know, what what is po- the, the art of the possible in terms of exploiting uh, GPS. There are some um, public examples of, of incidents where, where ships have kind of, um, you know, ended up in the wrong location when their instruments told them, you know, they were, you know, one place, uh, they, it turned out they were, weren't in that place actu- in actuality. And so uh, GPS spoofing is a, is a thing that is possible. And that's certainly raising a lot of concern. Mm. Um, and it's also causing a bit of an arms race, right? So, so when, when you're starting to introduce some of these 
cyber means to um, negatively impact some of these services that folks have relied on for a long time. There's kind of a you know okay so if 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 that this is possible then how do we how do we address that threat how do we counter that that capability and so this is one of the drivers for a lot of the work in this area to like uh, you know more seriously look at the cybersecurity space systems and 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 how they're uh, used and to to try to get more folks kind of studying this problem because this is not something that the DoD can solve entirely right. by itself and so bringing in you know more of the security research community you know through events like Hackasat for example and and getting more folks in general to to kind of study the problem and kind of explore the problem that's really one of the reasons why uh, you know the the Space Force has asked me at, at least to, to uh, be on this podcast to try to raise awareness for some of this stuff what about like satellite support infrastructure? Because I mean, we, you know, we've been talking about the satellites themselves, but they they need you know some sort of things to survive. You know, ground stations and even launching systems. What about the what are the cybersecurity aspects of, of those systems? How easy are they maybe to attack or to interfere with? And these are probably the the most familiar for from an attacker point of view. Uh, instead of the sa- uh, satellites themselves, because these are network systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times, you know, they're they're networked multiple points across the globe. Uh, they might have backup communication satellite links, uh, uh, terrestrial IP networks, and so forth. So this is probably the aspects that might be the most familiar, I think, from security researchers' perspective that I would be most familiar with versus the satellites. And so these are definitely very apt to be attacked, if you will. Mm. Right. Um, one, you know, one aspect of, of these systems is a lot of them are not connected to the public Internet. Mm. But, um, you know, as as space systems in general, um, you know, become larger and, and, you know, there's even within these private networks that the DoD might operate or become more interconnected. That does raise concern and, and raise some questions about, you know, how do we how do we better secure these things, you know, that that maybe weren't intended to be connected. Now we're starting to see some of these systems, you know be connected for for mission purposes or for um you know just just as technology advances and so you know that's that's certainly an area of concern as well yeah 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 i mean amazon's now offering aws uh, ground stations uh, huh. so you can buy your cloud ground stations so huh. um that's some, something to think about <laughs> right right yeah and that's a that's a good point so the the dod in general um isn't only worried about the security of their own systems right mm-hmm. so um as industry puts more vehicles in space, there's also concern about how those those satellites could potentially negatively impact something like GPS, for example. Right, and right. so, and so, there's concern about what if a, a bad guy takes control of a, over a commercial satellite? Could that somehow be used to negatively impact a DoD mission or or even a you know other commercial satellites, for example? So you know the the DoD is also concerned about having commerce and space be, you know, unfettered. And so, you know, having, having just um, commercial satellites kind of interfering with each other is, is a concern. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and another kind of attack vector that has come to light, uh, certainly in the general public lately has been uh, supply chain checks, uh, software supply mm-hmm. chain checks, like we had with the solar winds thing. You know, we're still recovering from that. We may be for years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, basically the bad guys didn't target the corporations or the governments, you know, that they wanted to attack directly. They targeted software that they knew that they all used and kind of, you know, Trojaned in a different kind of it. That, that, that's an overloaded term in cybersecurity. But, you know, kind of got in through the back door, you know, by changing software that they knew would be imported into that company. So how how secure are satellites and their support systems from software supply chain attacks? And and then ob- the obvious follow-up question is, you know, what about hardware supply chain? You know, a lot of the chips and things we buy are not sourced. You know, maybe they are for military probably, but maybe they're not all sourced within the U.S. 
Yeah, I'll talk to the um, the software side of things because that's what I'm most familiar with. But I think what you're talking about is actually ubiquitous across many industries, not just mm-hmm. um, you know spacecraft, aerospace industry. Mm-hmm. It, is, it comes down to our trust model, really. Um, let's take our Linux, for example, or any other open source project. There's numerous authors that are contributing to this. And you know it's, it's possible that, and it actually was proven, I think, by a research group, that they might be able to introduce bugs yep. uh, and compromise, you know, that particular software, that software supply chain. Yep. And a lot of times, you know, what you're you're getting is an artifact. You're getting a binary library, uh, in some cases, source code. It's incomplete, and you're trusting that supplier, right? And so this is causing, you know, those issues that you're seeing now. What I found interesting is just recently, actually, uh, on May 12th, an executive order was passed mm. that it's including the National Institute of Standards and Technologies on proving this. But really, it comes down to creating a trust model, a way for us to audit the software in a manner that we can you know, trust that software. And some of these various technologies actually have been solved in a, a very uh, unfamiliar field, probably, but cryptocurrency themselves. They, right. They've been you know, addressing the concerns with uh, distributed trust models and, and, and blockchain technology and things like that could potentially be uh, applied uh, to you know, securing these software supply chains. Right, yeah. Uh, what what about hardware? I, I, I assume it's been a lot. I'd actually, when I was a when I was an electrical engineering student at Purdue University, I was a co-op student at Magnavox, and at the time we were doing uh, DoD work. We were doing uh, anti-submarine warfare. We were doing sonobuoys, and uh, I'd remember the procurement process for for parts was crazy. Like the, <laughs> all this red tape. That was many many years ago, and but I assume it's somewhat similar now. I assume that like hardware supply chains are maybe a little bit easier to monitor for military stuff. I don't know. So yeah, to a certain extent, yes, and uh, but but on the other hand, no. So so so, uh, the U.S. used to make more hardware in the U.S., and so now mm-hmm. you know with with modern computers and 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 you know if I mean, Dell servers are used on space systems too, for example, uh, and so making sure every chip on that server and all the components that you know kind of get assembled maybe in Texas by Dell, um, you know kind of understanding the supply chain of all that hardware is, um, you know, that's a pretty daunting task. Mm-hmm. You know, Dell certainly can track where it all comes from, but not all of it comes from the U.S., right? And so, you know, in general, like the chip fabs uh, that, you know, are producing a lot of the chips that we need for some of this hardware are in other countries. And so, you know, there's a certain, there's a there's a very real concern within the DoD as well as just within uh, commercial industry as well on, on this, you know, the hardware supply chain for some of this stuff, you could look at that the chip shortage that we're having currently that's right. affecting all kinds of stuff like uh, i think ford has you know thousands yeah. of vehicles that are sitting in a parking lot somewhere because they can't yep. get enough chips uh, for for even vehicles currently and so you know this is a uh, supply chain in general is a massive concern and you know the other thing to you know mention is that you know some of the the concerns that we have with computers in general with the security of of information technology space hardware and software is not, uh, you know, somehow entirely different, right? And so some folks, when they think space, think that some kind of alien technology or something. (sighs) Space systems generally use, you know, similar hardware and software that we use in other types of systems. I mean, the spacecraft themselves certainly have some specialized Mm -hmm. hardware, but, um, you know, they, they generally follow the same rules as other computers. And so, you know, the kinds of vulnerabilities and threats we see, you know, in, in kind of general purpose computing, you, you have similar classes of vulnerabilities with space systems as well. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's certainly economies of scale when you're when you're buying these things. I mean, to do the custom stuff for this, like you said, there there will always be those certain chips of things you need to do in house. But you could save a hell of a lot of money if you could just pull something off the shelf at Best Buy. I mean, obviously we're not <laughs> we're not doing that, but you know what I'm saying. You know, where we could you know, reuse uh, something that another company has made millions of uh, and done them efficiently and cheaply. And yeah, so but that yeah opens us up to all sorts of other problems. So back to the the software aspect of this. You know, when we find bugs in software, which we do all the time because all software has bugs, you know, the usual remediation technique for that is fixing them with a software update. Now, how, how feasible is that actually do for like satellites that are in orbit? So satellites on orbit, um, generally you can update the software on them. There are certain things that are difficult to update, but in general, you know, you can update firmware on satellites or, or components of satellites so that there is such a thing as patching a satellite. <laughs> Well, and again, I'll, I'll come back to the IoT thing, and this is something, that I, and I applaud the administration for, you know, the, the recent executive order and some of the focus they've been putting on on cybersecurity because it really is. I mean, it's it's become a, a, a bad problem, especially with IoT because there's a computer and everything now. But you know, coming up with mm-hmm. some sort of you know standard techniques for automatically you know updating in a secure fashion software that's in the field is crucial. Absolutely. And if you can't do that, then and which is a, a lot of the problems we have now, people buy, you know, some cheap. Uh, IoT products that they'll never update. Even if they knew how to do it, they'll they'll never do it. And some of them, it's impossible to update. We've got to, you know, as part of just general infrastructure, and we need to, you know, spend time and money on this. We need to be coming up with standardized, recognized, secure ways of figuring out what software is out there. You know, software bill of materials kind of stuff, and then being able to remotely and securely and robustly update that software. Yeah, I think this is um, something that that executive order is trying to address, but it's. I call it the concept of software provenance. Mm. We need to be accountable for every line of code. And that doesn't, you know, when you when you look at things, you get, where's that source code coming from? Who made it? Who's responsible for it? When's it been updated? When was the last patch? Even just finding out what particular software is present right. on a system, right? When it, you know, and if it's vulnerable or not is a hard problem for IT administrators mm-hmm. today. It takes them time. So even end days when they when they come out, you have a period of time where they're they're not patched. A lot of systems remain unpatched, and so the, you know the the attacker is is always ahead of the game right now. The defenders are always falling behind, and uh, that situation definitely needs to change. Yeah, and of course the classic quote there is, you know, that the good guys have got to be right 100% of the time, and the bad guys only have to succeed once. <laughs> you know, they only have to find yep. one thing, and yeah, that makes it that makes it hard. Which is why you have defense in depth and et cetera, et cetera. And again, I, I know you guys are in positions where you probably can't talk about all these things, but have, have there been any publicly documented cases of actual satellite sabotage that we, is that a known thing? Has it happened? So there was uh, some testimony uh, before Congress where um, a NASA official was basically asked a similar question and he um, disclosed that there were a couple uh, incidents that NASA was tracking um, involving a satellite called Terra and Landsat 7, I believe. And basically, um, NASA is kind of still not quite, not quite positive what happened, but they believe there was a, an attempt to kind of um, interfere with the satellite through kind of cyber means. Mm. And so um, they, they didn't really describe the details of that incident, and I'm not familiar with the, the details either. But um, there is, uh, you know, if, if you kind of Google, you know, Landsat 7 and, and NASA, and you probably find the uh, testimony where um, mm. NASA sort of talked about that a little bit in front of Congress. And so, so there is concern. Um, obviously, you know, like we said, the satellites use technology that you find in other domains as well. And so, you know, some of this technology has similar classes of vulnerabilities you see on other types of IT systems. 
And so, you know, there's certainly, you know, the possibility that there are vulnerabilities in some of these systems, and we have to probably get a little more serious about how we look at how to secure some of this stuff because of the criticality of a lot of it. That actually perfectly brings us into uh, the topic at hand, which is, uh, you know, how we are actually recruiting hackers to help find these bugs. So um, a common thing today is for, for a lot of software makers is to recruit hackers to find bugs in the systems. They have bug bounty programs. And recently, U.S. Air Force embraced this methodology with its F-15 fighter, which I don't know if a lot of people are aware of, but there was a, at the annual DEF CON hacker conference. They brought in a couple, some of the systems from within the F-15 fighter and had the hackers go at it. And uh, love to hear from you guys what happened there. But basically, it was successful enough that the, that the Air Force decided to come back again and do it with satellites. Um, and I think that's where we're going to be talking about here the most today. But one question I've got to ask, though, you know, assuming these systems are probably highly classified, how did... <laughs> How did this ever work? How, did, how was it ever the case that these systems were ever brought out into the open uh, and exposed to hackers to try to break? Basically, the, the I think there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of different thinking currently within the, the DOD in terms of how to address some of these problems. Um, so traditionally, if a vulnerability was found with, you know, some of these critical systems, that, that would be highly classified and folks would never want to t- admit that you know those vulnerabilities existed, or, or kind mm-hmm. of um, you know kind of put any kind of light on on the you know some of those details. The other way to look at it is: Would you rather find these vulnerabilities before your adversaries do? Right, and so <laughs> right. So bringing in you know more folks to kind of look at some of these problems and identify them ahead of time before the bad guys do. Basically, that seems to be the kind of uh, approach that you know some folks are taking in terms of how to you know address some of these cyber concerns with with systems that, you know, are of critical national security importance. And so that's why I think you're starting to see more things like Hack the Pentagon, for example, that digital services are holds. So the the part of uh, Space Force that I support, uh, Space and Missile Systems Center, uh, there are discussions about potentially doing something similar with with, uh, some of the systems that they build. And so nothing's kind of finalized yet, but that is, um, you know, that that is sort of, um, you know, we're starting to see, you know, more folks kind of take that approach versus, you know, only having, you know, the limited resources we have available with the appropriate clearances, kind of studying things in a lab and getting more light shed on this stuff. Um, hopefully will help us find the problems before they, you know, are used against us, basically. Right. Well, it, it's it's really fascinating. So let's, let's talk a little bit more. Uh, your team is about to host what's called a Capture the Flag uh, hacking tournament as part of the qualifications for some of the stuff you're doing at DEF CON, you know, which is another kind of a different approach for recruiting hackers to find bugs. For my audience, could you explain, you know, what is a Capture the Flag? What's a CTF and how does that work? And then, you know, maybe relate that to your Hackasat training. Capture the Flag is it's a information security competition that challenges you know the competitors or, or teams to solve a variety of tasks to essentially capture the flag and, and score with that. Some of these have ranged from from scavenger hunts to uh, cryptography challenges to basic programming exercises, all the way up to discovering uh, zero days and synthetic challenges, or even discovering zero days uh, in real systems. Uh, and exploiting those, mm. you know, it's kind of a very overloaded term there, but it, it really co- encompasses a, a lot of different types of competitions. You have online events that occur. Uh, you have in-person events that maybe occur at uh, uh, various conferences. And I, I would say you probably have one, if you go on the ctftime.org, you probably have one that is occurring almost every weekend at this point in time. Uh, and it's really something that I, I've been involved in for a long time. Uh, it's a great educational experience, a great learning experience, and it's a great opportunity for people who are passionate about this this industry to go out there and challenge themselves. 
So let's dig in just a little bit more. So uh, when Capture the Flag, the classic game that you played as a kid, maybe is, you know, you've got two opposing teams, each one with a red flag, one with a red flag, one with a blue flag or whatever. And your your goal was to capture the other person's flag and bring it back to your base and do that first. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about computers here. So this is this is all in the virtual realm. So like, what does it look, how do you, what does it look like to quote unquote capture a flag on a computer? Like what, how does that actually play out? Give me an example. Yeah, so a lot of times you have um, different types of competitions, but uh, one of them is kind of a, a Jeopardy-style CTF, which is where you have, everybody's familiar with the, the, the game of Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And you have a, a board that you unlock a challenge, and you're presented with some you know challenge details. And that challenge might be you have some web service connect to it and, and steal privileged authentication token from that. In that case, that privileged authentication token could be the flag, mm. right? So if I am able to successfully exploit that web service and get that authentication token, I can present it back to the organizers of the through some web portal or something like that, where I would then be able to present that to them and show them I've successfully captured that flag. You have other types of games, which are uh, attack defense style CTFs, where you might have web services or you might have uh, vulnerable services on a network device that each team is able to access. And you're, you're tasked with defending those services and likewise attacking them. And if you're able to you know exploit that service finding a vulnerable code path or command injection or something like that, you can capture some privileged information off that system. And that's the flag in that essence. And then present that back to the organizers and they'll score you for that appropriately. If you can also successfully defend that service and prevent it from being attacked, you might also be able to get points for that. That's, that's really cool. So I guess this is Hackasat 2, if I read it correctly. So this, I guess there was a Hackasat 1. What, walk me through the history. Like, what was the first Hackasat 1? And what happened there? And, and, and it's successful enough that you, I guess, you're doing it one more time. Hackasat 1 was held last year. And as, as I think many people remember, last year was a pretty uh, interesting year for, for mm-hmm. a lot of folks, for, for everybody. But the event started with a qualification round, which was an online uh, competition uh, in the spring of two, uh, 2020. And uh, over 6,000 competitors oh, wow. uh, took part and organized into uh, 2,213 teams. Wow. And, and out of those uh, 2,200 teams that uh, competed, eight of those teams, the top eight teams, were selected to go on to the final event. Originally, we envisioned this final event occurring uh, in person at DEFCON uh, mm. <laughs> Capture the Flag. Uh, but as we everybody knows, uh, the global pandemic set in, and yeah. uh, we had to change our plans. And so we did uh, a virtual event instead. So we, it was a DEF CON uh, 28 safe mode, which was an all virtual event. And the teams uh, connected in through VPN and they connected to our network. And we had a series of, of competition challenges that they had to work through. And it was a scenario-based CTF. And the story behind this uh, particular competition was is that an adversary or, or somebody had taken control of the satellite and they were going to hack their way back into the satellite to recover the satellite, hmm. uh, in which they had to do by first uh, hacking the ground station component that we created, and then you know connecting to the satellite over an RF link, and then you know slowly getting control of each of the satellite systems. Uh, it was six challenges total, and uh, it was a blistering event. It happened over two days, and the teams worked. I would imagine nonstop without any really any sleep, very little sleep if they were, and one team was actually successful and finishing all the challenges. And then at the end, the last challenge, they had to take a picture of a moon, which we had in the room. So there was a a, uh, a moon uh, that we had put on the wall and these flat sets themselves were inside uh, a carousel that was rotating about one rotation every 15 minutes to simulate an orbit. And they had to rotate their satellite, command it, 
after they have successfully worked through all the challenges and, and got control of it and take a picture of the moon. Huh. There's also another event that occurred as well where they had to command an actual real satellite uh, in orbit and, and command profile and take a, a real picture of the moon. So this was oh, wow. really an interesting and challenging competition. And I, I'm trying to remember the exact name of the team. It, it escapes me at this moment in time, uh, but one team was successful and uh, able to, to you know, get through all of the uh, virtual challenges and then I think a couple teams were successful in, in doing uh, the moonshot picture as well. So how does that inform what's going to happen this year at Hackasat 2? So basically the uh, desires try to kind of raise the bar on, on these events. And so last year was a kind of a more of a Jeopardy style CTF um, where there were kind of predefined challenges and the teams would kind of unlock challenges as, as they completed one challenge, they would get the next. And they kind of worked kind of in their own environment. This year, as Jason was mentioned earlier, there you know there are different types of CTFs. So uh, this year for Hackasat 2, it's going to be more of the attack and defend style CTF. Not only that, but the goal is to sort of make these events more interesting and kind of build the realism and complexity of the events over time. And so going forward, future versions of Hackasat are being discussed. And so there are plans to kind of you know increase the uh, the fidelity of the the events and make them more interesting. And so uh, keep an eye out on future versions of Hackasat because there's some pretty cool stuff being planned. What about bug bounty programs? I think you mentioned the Pentagon had one, uh, which I wasn't aware of. Uh, for the audience's sake, if they don't know, bug bounty programs are often run through, you know, kind of consolidators like maybe Hacker One or whatever, where these where corporations, big, you know, Apple, Google, Facebook, and others, come in and say, all right, we, uh, under limited circumstances, we're going to have, we're we're going to provide uh, you know, services that we want the hackers to attack and see what they can if they can find bugs, and then Hacker One kind of organizes that and pays out bounties, you know, for certain levels of things depending on how hard they are to find and what the company's willing to pay and yada yada yada. Does the government sponsor public bug bounty programs? Uh, yeah. So, so in the case of Hack the Pentagon, so U.S. Digital Service Services uh, basically held that event. I believe they did contract with Hacker One to actually run that. And so, so basically, that was in essence what you described is what they did. Basically, there were um, Pentagon sort of websites, basically that were kind of the focus of the bug bounty. And so, basically, anyone was able to kind of participate, I believe. And sometimes, uh, when the government runs these, sometimes there is a vetting process to make sure you know the folks involved are U.S. citizens, or mm. or sometimes they are open. You know, the actual bad guys that might be going after these services aren't necessarily only be U.S. citizens embedded <laughs> right. by by the folks that are, uh, you know, planning things. So um, I think it can vary based on how, how these are constructed, but the DoD is starting to kind of run these types of uh, events uh, as well as, as uh, similar ways to how industry runs them. Yeah, I think one that uh, came, came to mind for me most recently was uh, DARPA actually did a bug bounty for the first time. FET bug bounty hmm. is uh, finding exploits to thwart tampering. This was actually stemmed from a, a DARPA project to build a secure processor. So it was it was called SIF, uh, where they were, were um, tasked with creating a secure risk v5 processor. So this was at the hardware level, defending against attacks. And so they they created this DARPA program, and industry responded and developed technologies to do this. And they wanted to test the technology, the efficacy of that technology. And so they did this through the DARPA FET bug bounty program to allow uh, researchers to come in and, and test their skills and their uh, attack uh, toolset against this uh, processor that they had developed. Yeah, and that sounds a little bit. Uh, I think I read 
uh, about the Morpheus project, which is a really interesting new CPU design. Um, and I'm actually going to be interviewing one of the guys that, that worked on that project from the University of Michigan. So yeah, kind of sounds like a similar kind of a thing. Uh, all right, as we wrap up here, let, let's uh, talk a little bit about your particular Hackersat program. And if, you know, if anybody in my audience is intrigued you know, about hacking and might want to try their hand at earning bug bounties or, or entering your Hackersat contest, what advice would you give them on how to get started? I guess specifically about your Hackersat, how if people want to look into that and then kind of generally, you know, if we've got some aspiring hackers in the audience, what, you know, do you have to be an engineer, for example? Do you have to be a software engineer or some sort of computer whiz to do this stuff? Yeah. How would you recommend somebody get started? And, and if they want yours in particular, what do they do to get into Hackersat? Yeah. So to be, to be frank, I, I think it's, for me, it's really about being passionate about technology and being passionate about, you know, entering the field. Because there's there's a lot of great resources out there. You can just look online. There's uh, you know Reddit, subreddits, uh, uh, security CTF, uh, NetSec, and so forth that you can use. There's CTF101.org or CTF Time. At the college level, there's security clubs and so forth. It's just getting that group together or becoming a part of a group and reaching out and being involved. I found that I've met some great hackers that didn't have college degrees that went into the field right out of high school. And they just found that they were fascinated by the technology. They were fascinated by how systems operated and they wanted to learn more. They were, I would say this mm-hmm. curiosity that was about them. They, they were always looking for, yeah. well, you know, a lot of times when the system's designed, somebody designs it in a certain way, but they don't realize that there's, there's repercussions because of those design criteria that they've made it. So they really want to understand how these systems operate. And it's, we're talking about really complex systems here that nobody really understands all the details of. So, <laughs> right. yeah, you know, what I found is, is it's just having that, you know, desire, that passion, and then finding the resources going out there on the internet, local security clubs, uh, even starting one if one doesn't exist and is, is the best way. A mm-hmm. lot of the CTF competitions I've seen are either organizations, even at the corporate level, corporate sponsorship, but then universities, high school clubs, things like that. And what about your Hackersat contest, uh, contest in particular? I know that's it's coming up soon. Defon's coming up, and you've got some qualifications coming up. Kind of walk, you know, walk me through some of the deadlines and how that works. And uh, if somebody wanted to jump in, what would they would do? Uh, sure. So basically, the registration uh, window is open for qualifiers. That closes on June twenty seventh, and so um, the qualification round, uh, the the top ten teams win, can win a ten thousand dollar prize. And then the uh, finals are going to be held on September 17th. And the uh, first three places also can win prize money. So there's $50,000 for first place, $30,000 for second, and $20,000 $20, for third. And so, mm. you know, there's actually some uh, some decent prize money that oh, goes yeah. into uh, winning these things. Yeah, yeah, very cool. I think last year, the, the winning teams also, they got to take home a custom flat set that we made as well. And what what's a flat set? In this case, the the term is often used for kind of a benchtop prototype satellite. So it's it's not in its fully uh, configured form. It's not in its final form factor. It might have prototype components in it, things mm-hmm. like that. And in the case of last year, it was a, I would say about a 40 centimeter cube that had onboard a flight computer, which was we called a command and data handling board, uh, had an onboard COM board, which we had an RF link for. It had uh, ADCS attitude determination control system, which had a reaction wheel. So it has single access degree of freedom. Uh, we came with an air bearing as well. So you could have it basically rotate freely on a frictionless environment hmm. there. Uh, and so they, they were given this uh, in a Pelican case and everything. It was actually what <laughs> they were using the, in the final event. And so they got to keep their, uh, their we call them trophy flat sets at the end of the competition. Very cool. A lot of teams really liked it. 
So let me wrap up with uh, this question. What's the future of cybersecurity look like look for, look like for the satellite industry? Um, can we can we really hope to secure these devices against a determined hacker, like particularly like maybe a nation state hacker? It just seems really difficult to do. And then, you know, how do programs like Hackset figure into our efforts to protect these assets and everything that depends on them? Yeah, so that's that's a interesting question. Um, <laughs> I could, we could probably spent the uh, the whole podcast just talking about that, but. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that the the way we we are looking at the problem might be a little bit off in general. So, you know, you don't look at a bank and say, you know, how do we eliminate the possibility a bank could be robbed, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you're, you're never going to reduce the risk of a bank robbery to zero, you know, and still have a functional bank that, can, right. you know, have customers come in and kind of bring money in and take money out. Right. And so I think, you know, with cybersecurity in general, not just in the space domain, but we have we, we kind of have to look at it in, in a similar fashion. Like how do we reduce the risk to an acceptable level and how do we address, you know, the threats? Um, you know, in cyber, it's a little bit harder because I think we understand the threat of a bank robbery, right? We understand, right. you know, generally how people rob banks and kind of what tools, tactics, and procedures they, they use when they rob a bank. With computers, it's a lot harder because the technology is constantly evolving. Sort of the playing field keeps changing, right? As quick as we could come up with ways to kind of address some of the threats, you know, we have new threats to worry about. And so I think it's, unfortunately, it's going to be, you know, a kind of a continual game of, of cat and mouse where as, you know, we come up with new technology, there are going to be new vulnerabilities in that technology. The fact that we're on this podcast, the fact that, that the uh, you know DOD is basically looking at this problem a little more seriously and trying to bring in more folks to kind of study it, I think is a, a good sign because oh, yeah. Yeah. you know with more attention on the problem, I think we'll do a better job at, at you know identifying the threats and addressing them. And so I think that's the kind of the positive side. While I don't think you'll ever get to the the, the state where there are no vulnerabilities in computers or space systems, uh, I think that you know focusing on this problem a little more, putting more research into the area and kind of just maturing the the state of the art um, will help us address the threats to uh, and manage them and bring bring the risk down to an acceptable level. Yeah. Uh, Jason, what's your take? Yeah, I think what Carl said is, is on point with uh, regards to we'll never get to provably secure systems. Mm. I've spent a lot of time looking at formal methods, which is one method that they use to try to go that route. And the fact of the matter is, is it formal methods has some model that they have to uh, test. And that model always has, it, it doesn't model the real systems, right? There's, there's fidelity errors there. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I do see that is unfolding now is uh, a future where we're talking about more satellites, we're talking about smart spacecraft or more processing, more autonomous decision-making capabilities are being pushed to the satellites themselves, uh, sat- inter-satellite links. So we have satellite satellite communication, and we're seeing a lower barrier of entry uh, with costs dropping significantly for launch costs. So, you know, it's opening up a larger playing field. And so we need to take this cybersecurity itself for the aerospace industry in particular, I think, uh, easy to catch up a little bit. We've seen cybersecurity focus strongly, you know, in kind of our terrestrial networks and and, and corporate networks and environments like that. But these systems are kind of, I feel like, lagging behind, uh, mm. especially as more and more people are being involved. Now, not, it isn't just nation states, government agencies, and large corporations that are putting satellites in orbit. Now, uh, we have universities and small groups of people now, because of the cost of entry, that are able to launch their own small sats, their own CubeSats, and things mm. like that. And the platforms and the technology are evolving very rapidly, and uh, it's very fragmented when you kind of look out there at it, which is kind of how IoT was for a while and right. still is, right? And we've seen the security behind that. So there needs to be some greater focus on this from an engineering perspective and maybe even from 
maybe some some some, some laws or some uh, compliance that's required here to kind of address these concerns. And and I do think you know Hackasat as a competition is is really about raising this awareness. It's kind of raising the flag, lifting the veil, if you will, right. on on these spacecraft uh, and and how they they work, uh, some of the technology that goes into them, the challenges and bringing attention to cybersecurity researchers and aerospace engineers and so forth uh, about some of these difficulties and getting them to unite and, and think about it together. And maybe we can start to identify these challenges, solve the cur- current challenges and, and look ahead to that and stay kind of ahead of that cat and mouse game where we don't end up in a situation where we're, we're looking back and we've got you know all these systems uh, in existence, this fragmented ecosystem, there's no coordinated defense strategy there or, our technology strategy, and now we're trying to fix it after the fact. Right, right, and I, you know, and I think, I think it's tempting to, to especially be able to people that are, that aren't familiar with uh, security just in general uh, is you know security by obscurity, where you know it, it, we just keep it hidden, and, and if we, nobody can find it, they can't figure out how to hack it. But that's that is totally not the way to go. I mean, the way you know the way things got to where they are today is that we've we've made these things available for for experts to to, to vet and to look at and to poke at and prod at and you know and find the bugs and, and to work work out the kinks. Um, and it, it, things get better over time because we do things like that, and that's where that's why it's so cool. I think that the that the government is is getting out there and, and exposing you know all these things to the general public and said hey you know help us find bugs in this and you know before someone else does and that's what you guys are doing it's all about that's wonderful well uh, jason and carl thank you so much for coming on the show it's been really really informative uh, i had a great time talking about it appreciate you having us i'm glad we could uh, talk about this and uh check out hackasat.com uh, for more details if uh, anybody listening is interested and you know hopefully we'll see you in vegas at defcon yeah, I'd love to see you. Uh, Jason, any final words? Yeah, uh, thank you, Kerry. And yeah, like you said, if you haven't already, check out hackset.com. And uh, I'd like to thank the Air Force and, and the Space Force for putting this on and making this all possible. That was really cool. What a great interview. What a really cool concept. What a fun topic. And thanks for listening. That was a lot of fun. A couple things I want to bring up in retrospect now that we've had the interview. Both Jason and Carl mentioned the digital service. And that's a thing. That's a There's a group called the United States Digital Service, or USDS. Um, and I just want to really quick uh, read the mission from their website, the USDS.gov. And they say, USDS is a group of technologists from diverse backgrounds working across the federal government to transform critical services for the people. These specialists join for tours of civic service to create a steady influx of fresh perspectives. Our mission is to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people in the greatest need. That's a really cool credo. And basically, you don't, it's kind of like a, it's a tour of duty. Uh, you sign up, volunteer, you get paid, actually, you can get paid quite well um, to work for like one to four years in this program to help make things better. Uh, I've actually considered doing this myself. Uh, they're based in Washington, D.C., so they, I guess they prefer you to work locally, so that would kind of limit things. Right now, during the pandemic, the people are working remotely, though, and you might be able to swing that deal. But I, I believe it was created in 2014 by the Obama administration, and I think it was actually done in response to the rather bungled rollout of the healthcare.gov website. And they recruited people out in the world to come work for them for a short period of time to make stuff better. So anyway, if that appeals to you, you might want to check out usds.gov. And if the hacking of satellites is something you would like to get into, and, and you do not have to be a computer scientist or a computer engineer uh, or even a super computer nerd to get into hacking. Um, I'm doing it now. Actually, I'm doing. I'm taking some classes, many of which are free online, 
And all you really need is passion. Just like, I forget if it was Carl or Jason who said that, but you really just need a passion for this stuff. And if you're interested at all, there's tons and tons of resources for this online. And there's a lot of free Capture the Flag tournaments where you can kind of test your skills and, and hone your skills. And in particular, if you're interested in Hackasat, uh, you need to get on the ball. And that's one reason I bumped this interview up in time to get it out right away. It's because uh, their registration for qualification ends on June 27th at 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And actually, the 30-hour of virtual qualifications start prior to that. Um, they start on June 26th at 10 a.m. Eastern. So I guess technically you could register after they've already started, but you might want that whole time. So if you're interested at all, check out hackasat.com, H-A-C-K-A-S-A-T.com. There are some really killer prizes, but there's no cost to just try. So check it out, see what it's about. I think they're going to select, uh, in this qualification round, I think they're going to select the top 10 people. Those top 10 people will win $10,000 each, I believe. And then the final round would be in mid-September, uh, I'm guessing, for those top 10 people that qualified. And the prizes there are another $100,000 total, $50,000 for first, $30,000 for second, and $20,000 for third place. So, good money there. I'm really hoping I can see uh, Jason and or Carl at DEF CON. Very psyched about going to DEF CON this year. And then next week, as I said, we'll have another interview. And we'll be talking to Josh Jackson from Six Clicks, kind of about the general state of cybersecurity and hacking today. And of course, we'll talk about solar winds and Colonial Pipeline and his perspective on some of the recent pushes by the U.S. government to raise our cybersecurity standards. So that'll do it for this week. Again, grab a copy of the book. If you ever thought about getting it, now's the time. If you have a book, please leave a great review on Amazon for it. That would be much appreciated. I will read them here on the air. If you're loving the podcast, I would love to get a great review on iTunes for that. And if you want that challenge going, sign up as a patron before the end of the month. Go to patreon.com or look for the link in the show notes. Time is running out. All right, everybody, take care. For those of you in the Western U.S., try to stay cool. I know it's crazy hot out there. Get yourself vaccinated. Get your friends and family vaccinated. Stay safe out there. And as always, until next week, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>